Amen? Amen. I, uh, I want to share with you today, being Palm Sunday, I want to share the importance of what we celebrate in this day and, and what it is that happened. Let me begin by saying this, that church, we are saved by grace. Okay, works cannot save you. I don't care how good you are, how good you do. You're not good enough. You cannot be saved by the good things you do. It, uh, again, it's impossible. You can be saved by grace. It is a gift of God. We are saved by faith. But faith without deeds is dead. So God, you know, in, in the scriptures, he, he has some things that he wants to do in balancing all of that out. But I want you to, again, don't, don't get confused in anything that we are saved by grace. It is by faith. But what is it that that faith is allowed to do? What is it are we allowing it to do in us? So the title of my message today is The Desperate Need for a Messiah. The desperate need that people had that, 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 were, that was going on. This is a, a common phrase as I was putting this together. I thought how appropriate because this is uh, something that we are, are looking at around our world today. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, they all knew that it was time for a regime change. There was a regime change that was taking place. They knew that. And this was the day. I mean, this was the day that God's people had prayed for. They had been praying and waiting and hoping and praying. They had for hundreds of years been waiting for this day. And here they were, these people were under the, uh, the, the crushing oppression of the Roman government. They had a boot on their throat, it was choking them out. They weren't allowed to be who God had called them to be. They'd been reduced, basically reduced to nothing more than a puppet state. They, they really had no authority, they were no longer allowed to have a king because the Romans wouldn't let them have one. And so they were people without a king. The Romans were generous and allowed them to appoint a high priest. But the Romans then told them whether that person was okay or not. So, you know, again, they had to approve who was chosen. They were saying, basically, you know, to make sure that that priest never gets any crazy ideas, to make sure that that priest doesn't rise up and lead a revolt that would begin to try to establish this, this, Israel, this state of Israel, that we're going we're gonna to take all of their vestments and all of their stuff, all of their, their religious robes, and they locked them away in the Roman guard tower. They kept all the ceremonial robes where they could give them out as they deemed fit. They could get them out on Passover. They could use them on some of the other holidays if the people behaved. But it was completely up to the Romans. And the, the people that, that were coming to the temple, you know, if they ever got any crazy ideas about revolt or rising up in revolt, what the Romans did was they built this fortress, this fortress that was named after Mark Antony. And it was called the Antonio. And the Antonio was a huge structure. And they built this huge structure, this Roman structure. They built it right on the side of the heart of their nation. They built this building and attached it right to the temple grounds where the people were worshiping. Right next to the most precious structure they had. Right next to the very heart of the nation. 
the Romans came in and attached this, the Antonio to that. And therefore, from now on, that temple had these giant towers on it. And so from now on, every time the sun would set, it would cast the long shadow of the Antonio over the temple. So the people were constantly reminded of who was in charge. And when the people came for Passover, all they had to do was look up and they saw the Roman guards with the spear tips and, the, and the, you know, the, all of the things that they would wear as soldiers. There were 600 soldiers on duty at any time through this point. And so if the people ever got a crazy idea about rising up in revolt, they were reminded by those soldiers that it's not a good idea. And the four towers that were built were towers that were 14 stories high. And the guards would stand on the top. And from that vantage point, they could see into the temple grounds to make sure that everything was going the way they wanted it to go and that the people didn't have the freedom to do what it was that they wanted to do. This was the kind of oppression that the people of God were were experiencing. And despite all of that, the people still continued. The Jews had not given up hope. They hadn't given up hope. I mean, there was these ancient prophecies that these people had received that we still see in Scripture, these ancient prophecies from hundreds of years. Imagine, hundreds of years earlier, there were these prophecies that were given that said a Savior would come. That a Savior was coming, a King would come, and He would ride into Jerusalem, and He would come, and He would come and deliver the people of God from the evil wickedness that was oppressing them. Zechariah, they knew what Zechariah said. They knew this scripture. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 8, it says this. And again, if you've got your um, app open, you can go to the, the sermon notes and you can follow right along. But Zechariah said this in Zechariah 9, 8. He said, I will guard my temple and protect it from invading armies. Now, before I read on anymore, think about, the, we're looking at all these scriptures from hindsight. We're looking at them as, as as those are in the fulfillment of what it was that was spoken. These people, they knew these prophecies before it had been fulfilled. So they're looking at this, and they don't know that what we know about Jesus and his coming and what happened. They're looking at it, waiting for the Messiah to come and do what the prophets had said. And this is what the prophet said in verse 9. He said, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's foal. <laughs> verse 10. I will remove, listen to, this is what they know to be true. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Come on, somebody say, praise God. Well, this is what they were looking for. And it was confirmed hundreds of years earlier, a couple hundred years earlier, by Isaiah. Isaiah had said this in Isaiah 63 in verse 8. He said, The Lord has sworn to Jerusalem by his own strength, I will never again hand you over to your enemies. Never again will foreign warriors come and take away your grain and wine. 
Verse 9, you raise the grain and you will eat it, praising the Lord. Within the courtyards of the temple, you yourselves will drink the wine you have pressed. In verse 11, the Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. That's what they were looking for. That's what these people were expecting. They were expecting this this kind of deliverance, this kind of overwhelming power to come and drive out the enemy. They had been waiting for this. And church, we're talking about Palm Sunday. This is the day it was happening. This is what was going on. The day of the Messiah had finally come. Can you imagine the kind of exuberance, the kind of exaltation, the kind of of joy that these people were feeling? It's happening. Imagine what it must have been like that day in Jerusalem, what it was like for the crowds that were gathered, the crowds that were waiting. They, some of them for, I mean, all of them for more than a lifetime generations have been waiting and waiting and waiting for this day and the rabbi they had taught us and told us as we were growing up we all knew that the messiah was going to come on passover because that's what they had told us that the messiah would come he would come on passover and he would come to judge the ungodly that's what they were waiting for that's what they were looking for well it's passover come on passover has come And there are hundreds, thousands of Jews from all over the nations who had come into Jerusalem for the Passover. They they had come from all around. They had come from all different places. And they were filling the streets. And the news started to get out of Jesus who was coming. This news started to spread. And the, the people started to form this parade. And ultimately that parade basically stretches a two mile long parade from Bethany all the way down into Jerusalem. And the people were shouting and crying out, Hosanna. They, they, were, they were waiting for the Messiah to come into the heart of Jerusalem. This is him. It must be him. He's the prophet, the prophet Jesus. He's the Messiah and he's coming. He has to be him. It's got to be. Look, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, he just came from his house. He was probably with them. He's on the way into Jerusalem. He healed two blind men. This is incredible. He is the Messiah and he's coming and he's going to do it. Jesus is coming. He's on the way. He's coming into town. Look, he's coming through the Kidron Valley down the steep hill that leads from the Mount of Olives and he's coming into Jerusalem. And the people were watching and they were waiting and the people started to shout and the the, the people started to to grow in in their, their sense of anticipation of what was going to come. Look! He's even riding on a donkey. Just like Zechariah said. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. He wasn't coming into town like the arrogant Roman leaders and generals were, riding on their big, powerful war horses. He didn't come in in, a, in, a, in that type of conquering kim, king. He came in the way, well, he came just like Solomon came. Solomon, the, the son of King David, when he rode a mule through the very same Kidron Valley. And he rode that mule, and he came into Jerusalem on that mule to take his rightful place as the anointed, appointed king. He came in that same way. 
And he's also coming, he came from the Mount of Olives. He's coming right, that's exactly what they said would happen. The prophet said the Messiah would come through the Mount of Olives, and this is what's happening. And they're overwhelmed, and the people start getting louder and louder, as only you can imagine. Jesus is coming. He must be the one. The one is coming. Jesus, the king, the Messiah, the new king that will come and take his role. He'll take his place upon the throne. Praise God. He's coming. Hosanna. Hosanna. They were crying out, save us. Save us. They were calling for the king, the king to come. And the peoples were taking off their coats and laying their coats in the road. Go cut some branches off the palms. Lay them down. Let's roll out the red carpet. Jesus is coming. Amen. The people were excited. Now it gets closer and closer and the people are yelling louder and louder. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the new king of Israel. And all these people that had pilgrimaged a pilgrim for years and years who were coming to the Passover. And here they are. They're in the, the Passover. And they'd been singing this pilgrim psalm for years and years. But this time, there's something a little different about it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was different because there he is. Here comes the blessed one. Here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. Look at he's coming and finally he's going to judge the ungodly. Oh man, they were excited. The crowds couldn't wait to see what happened when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, when he took his rightful place as the king. And they're thinking to himself, man, the Messiah is coming and he is going to change things up. He's going to stir, the, he's going to take those ungodly out. That's what they were planning. Finally, finally, for some of them for a lifetime. He's finally going to remove this pagan rule from our lives. He's going to take away this Roman oppression. We know what he's going to do. He's going to ride into town, and he's going to come into town riding on a donkey through the Kidron Valley, out of the Mount of Olives, and he's going to ride on this donkey, and he's going to come to the fork in the road, and he's going to turn, and he's going to head right into that place of Roman oppression. He's going to head right into the Antonio. He's going right into the middle of the heart of the Roman uh, uh, fortress, and he's going to go in there, and he's going to go to the heart of the ungodly, and he's going to drive them out, and he's going to take care of them in our glorious temple will finally be freed and Jesus will be anointed as king. That's what they were expecting. That's not what happened. How shocked do you think the people were when Jesus rode into town and they were all expecting him to make a right turn at the fork in the road to go to the Antonio. And instead, he took a left turn and the Messiah came, and this odd thing happened. Jesus rides in, and he doesn't go to the Roman fortress. What's he doing? He goes to the temple. And listen to what it says in Matthew 21, in verse 12. Very important scripture. Verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. In verse 13, he says, he quotes two, two prophecies. He says, it is written. And he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. That scripture is a, a he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. 
And then he goes on and he says, but you are making it a den of robbers, which again is a quote from Jeremiah chapter 7. And and we'll look at those here in a couple of minutes. It's very important that we understand what it is that he's saying. But before that, realize that what Jesus didn't do, what what he didn't do, is what the people were expecting him to do. He doesn't go into the Roman fortress. He doesn't go to the heart of the enemy's occupation. He doesn't go into the middle of their, the barracks and begin to drive out the ungodly guards and those who had brought great oppression against them. He doesn't go to the place where we would think that he would go drive out the evil and the wickedness. He goes to the temple, right to the heart of the Jewish religion, And he drives out the people, listen, the people who are providing basically a service of convenience for the people that were coming to worship. That's what he was really doing. Just driving out these people and the convenience. Look, just for a little back history, the law of Moses demanded that are commanded that every male of Israel, once they hit the age of 20, that during these times of festival, that, that once a year they would bring a half a shekel, which would be the temple tax. And they were required to bring the temple tax into the temple. Well, that day, in that day and age, most of the money that these people would have was, was like Roman or Greek coins that they were carrying. And on those Roman and Greek coins, they were covered with, you know, most of them, many of them had Domitian on it. They had pagans on there. They had all sorts of things that would have been blasphemous to take those coins into the God's temple. And so they, they weren't going to take those coins into the temple. So what they needed to do was to exchange their pagan money for a, a shekel or what would be acceptable to bring into the temple treasury. Because those others didn't belong there. And so this, in this currency exchange, they would come and these Jews would come and they would, they would give their currency up and they would pay a fee and they would be given back money that they could take in to bring to the temple offering. And the money that was made was money that was then given to the, the Romans or it was much of it given to then the temple priests. The law of Moses also then required the people of God to bring an animal sacrifice. And so they would bring animal sacrifices. Well, many of these people traveled a long ways. Can you imagine, I mean, traveling for some hundreds of miles, you know, toting your animal along with you? I mean, some of us struggle taking our dogs for a walk. So can you imagine, you know, they, they didn't do that. So what they would do is they would save all year long and they would then go into Jerusalem and they would go and they would be able to buy an animal for sacrifice. They could buy a bull, they could buy a lamb, they could buy um, a, a bird, a dove, whatever it was they needed for the sacrifice. They could go in and they could buy those things. And so the money changers and those who, who sold the animals, those, those services for those who were coming to worship, they used to be offered out in the Kidron Valley. So the people would come by, and if you wanted that service, you could use that service, and you could buy a, an animal, you could exchange your money, you could do whatever. It was your choice. You, you were, they were out there in the valley. But when uh, Caiaphas became high priest, he changed all of that, and he brought the money changers and those selling animals, and he allowed them to be moved into the 
temple courts so that they could have better control of all of that. And they could basically shake people down because they would make everybody feel like you had to, if you were going to come through there, you had to stop and change your money with them or you had to buy an animal with them. And if you didn't do that, then you really weren't supposed to go in to the temple. So it became a, what became a, started as a service of convenience turned into something that was keeping people from worshiping God. I mean, how else were they going to pay for the temple? I mean, that was their mindset. How else are we going to take care of this? And so the religious leaders in that day felt that this was the most important business in all of the city. So all of that is, you know, the backdrop to this. Well, the people had been praying, and the people had prayed for years that the Messiah was to come, and the Messiah did, and the Messiah came, and here he is, he's coming, and it's Passover. Look, he's riding on a donkey, and he's going to come, and he's going to judge the ungodly. And they knew that, they thought that, they'd prayed for that. Ah, but to their shock, he confronted them, not the Romans. Basically saying, you know, who violated the holy place more? And church, listen to this. Who violated the holy place more? The Roman soldiers who stood in the towers with the high priest's garments locked away? Or the temple leaders who were making money off of a service of convenience for people that were coming to pray? Obviously, we know what God's thoughts on that were. I mean, it's bad enough that you're making money off people coming to pray, but you certainly shouldn't be doing it there. Shouldn't be doing it in the temple grounds. You're hindering, listen, you're hindering the very reason that the temple exists. You think that you're essential. You think that you're, you're, nece- you're a necessity. You, you think that your service is something that the people can't do without. And so the whole temple, it's run by that place of, con- of convenience. But the truth is, you're keeping the poor people from worshiping. Keeping people that are outside from coming inside. You're keeping people from worshiping God. And, and, and again, these were things that they had overlooked. And oftentimes, there's things that we just don't look at. We overlook. We don't want to confront. Amos had said this in Amos chapter 5, even before Isaiah, Amos said this. He said, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? The day will be darkness, not light. Verse 21, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. See, he's speaking to the fact that these people, that we can. He's talking to those who are more interested in their religion but Jesus, but God is saying, I'm more interested in people. So Jesus came in and he cleansed the temple. Today, church, you and I, we are the temple of God. So what would Jesus cleanse in the temple today? What would he come, what would he cleanse? 
You know, when the Messiah comes into town, you don't know where he's going to go. You don't know what he's going to do. And I think that sometimes we make our assumptions of what we think, and then that becomes our doctrine. When, when the truth is, is that it doesn't always work that way. You know what? We, it's like this. We know, we know that the Bible tells us that God is for us. Amen? Amen. amen. God is for us, right? And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Amen. Come on, amen? But we also then think, well, because God is for us, then God must be against those that we're against. That he must be against those who are coming against us. That God must be against those evil, wicked people. And, and the truth is, is that in reality, you know what God's against? Sin. And he is not, listen, God is not codependent. God is against sin, and he doesn't care where he finds it. He doesn't care. He goes after sin. He goes after anything that would stand between us and God, separating people from God, anything that would hinder people from coming to know God, coming to the presence of God, coming to love God, anything. And he is here, and his desire, he's out to remove evil. He wants to remove evil no matter where he finds it. And he's going to begin, again, one of the evils I think he will come against right away is the evil that we explain away as part of our religion. The evil that, that would be a part of just, you know what, that's the way we do things. That's just the way things happen. I mean, when the Messiah comes into town, listen, he, he finds evil, he, and he will. He will find evil right in the hearts of his people are those that have called themselves his people. And I think, again, without looking into what we see as just obvious things, I think that he will come in and he will begin to stand against the things that as, church, as, as the body of Christ, the things that we've accepted that aren't biblical. The things that we've accepted simply because it's cultural. The things that we've accepted just because I'm comfortable with that. The things that we accept because, well, it's convenient. I also think that he'll come in and we will stand for the, uh, stand, he'll stand against us in the things that we, well, the things that we've ignored. The parts of the, the word that we've stuck our head in the sand or we've let pertain to other people but not ourselves. The things that we just don't really, you know, we just don't want to think about. When church, real biblical worship is not what we did here earlier. Biblical worship, the kind of biblical worship that God is looking for, is daily worship of a changed life. Has the Holy Spirit changed your life or not? I, I can promise you this. You will never, you will, there is nothing in this world that comes to the magnitude, the size, the ability, the power, the authority of God. Amen? You will never have a personal encounter with God that does not change you. 
God is looking for us to be worshipers 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He wants us to worship Him by allowing Him to bring the change in our life that starts in here. He wants our worship to be something that we, we go out into this world and we begin to lift up others, begin to l- help others. We begin to be a, a voice of God into the lives of others. That we go out and we welcome people to come to God just as God came and welcomed you and I to come to Him. The worship of a king. Jesus, listen, Jesus, he came and will come in triumphal entry and he will come to judge the ungodly. And he will start with us. First Peter chapter 4 says, judgment begins with the house of God. Verse 17, it says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, and again, he's not going outside of what he's talking about here. This is the same context. He says, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? But you know what? We don't believe that. We we don't. Well, how do you know? It's reflective in the way we live. So many of us are, again, not just talking about the struggles in life, but I'm talking about the things that we ignore as sinful acts in our life. Things that we just accept as, well, that's just the way I am. Biggest cop out there is. Well, that's just the way I am. No, God didn't make you that way. You became that way. God's got another plan. But we don't believe that. You know, we think, well, when God comes, just like the people of Israel, they thought, when God comes, he's coming again. And when he comes, he is going to destroy those who are oppressing us. And he's going to come against the evil and the wickedness that has come to, uh, to, to destroy the church and to come against Christians. And the evil governments that are out there making all sorts of decisions to come against Christians. And he's going to come and he's going to undo all of the social wickedness. And he's going to come and he's going to come against the immoral. He's going to take out ruthless dictators. He's going to come and he's going to deliver us from all of those things. But church, don't get away from the truth. The truth that today, the temple, the place where God's presence dwells is in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us. So the question that I had that was just going over and over again in my mind was, What would Jesus cleanse from God's temple today? I mean, there's all sorts of the things that we would think about normally, you know, all of the obvious things, which I will tell you, after Easter, we're going to get into some things as we get back into the letters that uh, Jesus sent to the churches in Revelations 2 and 3. Um, We're going to deal with some pretty tough subjects. I mean, in the next letter, we're going to deal with apostasy in the church. And after that, we're going to deal with the spirit of Jezebel. Yippee for me. <laughs> You're going to, again, I, it's going to help you. Yes. It's going to help you. There's a point where God wants to separate the sheep and the goats. Yes. And we need to know. Yes, we do. Where do I stand? Otherwise, our head goes in the sand and we just 
assume. That's a big problem. So what would Jesus cleanse from the temple today? I think Jesus would, would, I think Jesus would cleanse some of the things that we widely accept. Some of the things that we just shake our head to and, well, things that, you know what, we just don't think anything about anymore. You know, if you read Scripture, if you read the New Testament, you will see that there is a lot of activities, there is a lot of things that Jesus did that we just don't do anymore. Well, why? Well, because it makes people uncomfortable. There's a lot of things that we don't do that Paul used to do, that Peter used to do, because it's uncomfortable. Because it's more important how many people we have in the seats than it is what's going on in the lives and hearts of those that sit in those seats. Listen, I, I think you go again. Those currency exchange people, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong. I think they had, you know, well, our heart is right. You know what? Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Don't trust your heart. Trust the word of God. So, you know, again, I think Jesus would go after some of the practices and the attitudes that somehow keep out the outsiders. That keep people out. We may not even try. It may not even be what we set out as an effort to do. But man, when people like that come into the church, it gets awfully uncomfortable. Sometimes it smells funny, and sometimes I don't like the things they might say or the attitudes they might have. And how are they going to influence, you know, my friends or my kids? Remember, when Jesus came into the temple to clear the temple out, he quoted from Isaiah chapter 56. And in Isaiah 56, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And we've quoted that, we've heard that, but we always use that in the context of prayer. You know, in Isaiah 56, and in your life groups later on, you'll be able to go through the scripture. I put it into the notes so that you would have the full context of the scripture. But when you, when you look at that whole thing in context, it's really not about prayer. It's about welcoming the Gentile pagans that were outside the church into the presence of God. Getting people to come from all nations to come to the presence of God. To come to know God. To come to meet God. And, and that's what he's upset about, is that these money changers, these people were, were stopping people from coming into the presence of God. They were requiring that they pay this or do that, or come with this or come with that, when all I wanted was people to come and to pray, come and to know me. I wanted them to come to know me because I'm the one who has the power to change their life, to secure their destiny. I'm the one who has the ability to set them free, and you're keeping them from coming to me. And then he quotes Jeremiah chapter 7. And again, I believe that one of the things that he's going to come against is the greed and selfishness that's still found in so many temples. Jeremiah chapter 7, he said, You have made my temple a den of thieves. Let me just read the context of this scripture here. In Jeremiah chapter 7, starting in verse 8, it says, Don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. 
Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and those other new gods of yours, and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe, only to go right back to all those evils again? Don't you yourselves admit that this temple which bears my name has become a den of thieves? Surely I see all the evil going on there. I, the Lord, have spoken. Look, I, I, I believe with all my heart that what he's talking about when he's talking about this den of thieves, he's talking about the condition of our heart. And what, what's, what's going on? What's in your heart? Are you okay coming to church and praying on Sunday only to go back out and Sunday night, Monday night, you're back to the old way, the same way of living, the same old sin, going back to that same old adultery, that same old kind of life, that same old, again, much of it focuses around sexual sin as we'll see in the coming weeks. Are we okay? I mean, I know that we all fall short. I know that we all have things in our life. But is there a spirit of repentance about us or is there a spirit of justification? Again, so yes, Jesus is coming to confront the condition of our heart and he's coming to confront evil and wickedness in us. He is. He is. And how we approach God with this idea that, what, okay, you know what, God, I can't wait for him to come because when he does, he's going to remove all the evil around me. Yet we're okay with the fact that there's no change in me. So what would Jesus cleanse from the temple today? I know as we think of this as a church, I, I was thinking of this as a church, and, and maybe your mind goes here as well. It, it will as soon as I say it. But one of the things when we think of how Jesus, man, come and cleanse the temple, what will that look like? Well, he's going to come in, and he's going to drive out all of those evil televangelists that are just taking money from people and doing this and doing that and living on their 80-acre ranches or their, their, their beachfront property. He's going to come against them. He's going to drive them out. Right? I mean, but isn't that convenient for us? Because I look around and, well, there's not a single televangelist here. <laughs> I mean, that's a little too easy. And I think that the truth is, is that Jesus would go after many of the things that we just assume but don't know. And many of the things that we accept that he doesn't. So I've been wrestling with this, trying to figure out, well, what are those things? You know, what, what is it? And again, I'm not, I was trying to get beyond just what would be the obvious things, you know, adultery and murder and lying, you know, all those things. I, what, what is it that he would really, you know, come against? What is it that he would come to drive out of us as, as the church, as the temple of God? I thought long and hard, and I'm going I'm to give you a couple of things that I think, but this is not exhaustive. You can come up with more ideas and thoughts in your own life groups, and, and, and I hope that you will. 
And again, we, we keep this all in mind. I said at the beginning that, you know, we are saved by grace. I'm not talking about salvation issues here. Although we could be talking about salvation issues because I think there's a lot of people who have put their trust in religion, even the evangelical religion, and put their trust in the fact that they belong to a church or that they had an experience with God at one point or another. Well, listen, the demons had an experience with God. You know, the, the demons, they... They believe and tremble. Don't let your emotional moment at an altar someplace become your salvation. Jesus saves us, not a moment. So in thinking long and hard about this, I think one of the first things that he would go after is one of those places of sin that we, again, we've been talking about as we've been going through these letters to, in, the, in Revelation. But one of the things that's common, even the sin that's common even amongst us evangelicals, and I think it's the sin of loving our religious practices more than people. I, I, again, you know, church, this is the truth. Every church has a liturgy. We all have religious practices. The church has one. They have many as a whole, new life. We have those as well. And so do you. As the temple of God, we all have liturgy and we all have a religious practice that we hold to. And we love our liturgy. We love it. And and we do that again because it becomes so painfully easy for us to focus on it. To make it Perfect, to make it right. We, we can focus on our religious practices. We can focus on, on how well we do service and how well we put things together and how, how well we structure the praise and worship and the greeting and everything that goes into it and how well we structure and we put all the time and energy into making the service to make this perfect. Convenient. I mean... Let's face it, that's why we have a 9 o'clock and an 11 o'clock service. 9 o'clock service is after breakfast, so you're not here sitting hungry. You've already eaten, and so you don't need to be hungry during service. And the 11 o'clock service is before lunch, so you're going to get out, and you're going to get out at least at some time. Hopefully, you'll get to beat the Baptist church to the diner. Amen. There's a sense of convenience in that. There's a sense of comfort. You know, we, you know, we really want to keep the service. I'm looking for a church. I'm looking for a place to worship. I'm looking for a service that's about an hour long. I really, an hour and 15 maybe, but anything more than that, and that's a little more than I can handle. I know we went out and bought brand new chairs, but man, an hour and 15 minutes, and my rear end's getting a little sore. Look, if we took and put the kind of time and energy that we put into our personal or or even our church liturgies, and we took that same energy and we applied it to ministering to people outside of these walls, started to reach out to people that were in pain, people of other nations, people that maybe they're not like us or people that might be different than us, that people that that we may not tend to relate to or tend to be comfortable with or people that aren't, you know, in our clique. People that are 
Well, without hope. People without God. Mm. Those people say things that kind of offend me. And sometimes they do things that well, I don't agree with. And, and, and why does it seem like those people always end up in trouble in the middle of the night? Church, would we ever be willing to change the habits and comforts that we like in here or in here in order to help people out there connect with God? Or are we going to insist that if people want to come to church, they got to do it our way. And they got to make this awful, awkward walk to the front doors where they, you know what, you got this person that is, you know what, I, I, they're depressed and they're anxious and they don't know what they're doing. They don't know where they're at in life. They don't, they're, they're in pain, they're suffering, they're hurting. There's things going on in their life that has them turned completely upside down and they don't know what to do. And the last ditch effort is, I, I, you know what, I'm gonna go try that church down there. I've heard people say, and they come down here and the anxiety starts to rise up just as they pull by the place. They have a hard time finding parking. And so, you know what? It's all an excuse. I wonder how many people have driven by and just kept on going because of the anxiety of us making them come to us. Or people that walk up to the front door there and they walk up to those doors and they come to the door and it opens up and they see people in their little groups and what they see inside and they're not sure what to expect and they turn around and walk away. And they do that because we insist on them coming in alone rather than somebody coming in with them. People are looking for God in all sorts of different ways and God's calling us to bring them to him. And again, bringing them to church is just one thing that we can do. But church, how, how would we feel if reaching out to others so this will mess with you. How, how would you feel if reaching out to others meant that you, we had to change our time of worship? Oh, yeah. Y'all shake your head until we start doing stuff. I had people complain about the Saturday night service that didn't even go to the Saturday night service. It wasn't you, Lacey. <laughs> Sorry. I, I couldn't help it. <laughs> I just, I know Lacey so I could do that. But you know how many times I've wanted to do that to so many of you that got up? And <laughs> Look. You know, what, what, if, what if we did? What if we needed to make some changes and, and there was a different time that you didn't get to come and to, you know, be in, in the same little fellowship group that your 9 o'clock service goes to or your 11 o'clock? What, what if we needed to make some changes? What if you needed to make some changes? What if you had to go to a different service because it's the only one that this friend that you've been trying to share Jesus with would be willing to come to? 
What if it meant that we had to embrace a, a, a new service that wasn't just like the old? What if it was different? What if it had different music, different style of music, different kind of music? What, what if it was something completely different? Would, would we embrace that? See, the, these changes come, and will we, in those changes, what it reveals is what's in us. So will we, in the changes that God wants to bring to the church, to the temple, to you, will we just grasp onto those old ways and hang on to it because that's the way we've always done it? Will we hold on to our old thoughts, our old theology, because that's the way we've always done it? That's what I want. That's what makes me comfortable. That's what's convenient. Or will we stay flexible and open so that we could become a house of prayer to people of all nations? All different kinds, all different places. If that didn't make you squirm a little bit, this one had me squirming. I've tried to talk myself out of this. I even asked Joni, and Joni said, I don't know that I'd do that. It's like, thanks, honey. <laughs> I just think that there's you know, a, a place where we can apply this that he's talking about. And, and I'm going to do this, and then I'll, I'll share with you why. There's a, um, a, an article that I was reading about a, this research team in Illinois, and they'd been researching the, these, these different things. And let, let me just uh, read to you what they said. They, they, they said that... that Seventy to eighty billion dollars a year. Seventy to eighty billion dollars a year. Now just think about that. How much that is that is a, a ton of money. But seventy to eighty billion dollars a year would meet the most essential human needs around the world. Now again, that is a lot of money. And I mean, unless you are working in the government, that is a lot of money. And they wrote this. They said this. They said, projects for clean water and sanitation, prenatal and infant care, basic education, immunizations, and long-term development efforts are among the activities that could, be, that could help overcome the poverty conditions that now kill and maim so many children and adults. 70 to $80 billion a year. That's all. Could minister to these ongoing needs. And change the world. Now, they also went on and said that figure of 70 to 80 billion sounds like an impossible amount, which, again, in a yearly way, yeah, absolutely. And then they said this they said, but if church members in the United States would increase their giving to 10% of their income, there would be an additional, additional $86 billion available for overseas work. We don't often think about our giving. We often don't think about what it can do and, and, and how it can bless many people and do things around the world. It's just, it, so you know, our church, when, whenever, I mean, for every dollar that comes in, we take 10% of it, everything, and it goes into a missions account, which we use to support and to minister to missionaries and mission work and missions that are going on around the world. We, we, we take that and we put it right into that so that it goes out. So all of you, need to, you know, there's 10% of what you give in your offerings and tithes and givings goes out to foreign missions, places where we send that out. 
But the lion's share goes to, again, in, in the, here in the storehouse, and it goes to keep the doors open, to, to you know, keep the place comfortable, to keep the air going, and to keep things going so that we can continue to do the works that we do and to reach out and to do all those things so that we can stay open for worship. But this is what God laid on my heart. And we don't do this a lot. If you've been here a while, you've probably never heard me do this. But I believe that this is the season right now as a time for us to receive a special offering. And let me tell you why I say that. I think we need to challenge ourselves to go against the grain. As I was praying about this, and I listen, I'm not shaking anybody down for an offering. I'm sharing with you what I really believe with all my heart that God laid on my heart. And I believe that this is a season and a time for us to give towards something that would go to ease the pain and the suffering of somebody else, somewhere else. And God laid on one of the first things that I thought about, and, and again, I thought about the Ukraine. And right now, you know, they're, 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 the, the funnel has got, you know, funds are coming in, and the funnel has, for them right now, you know, they're getting food into the places that we have access to get them in. And so, we're, you know, what can we do? And I really felt like just this impression that we needed to um, build 10 houses in Guatemala. And so I called Caleb and asked Caleb, I said, what would it cost to build a house down there? And when he told me, my faith went, so that's too much. And so first service, I said, what if we built five houses down in Guatemala? Five houses. You know, what's the average cost of a house here today? Three $400,000? It's ridiculous. But that's where we're at. Do you know that we can build 10 houses for $45,000? 10 houses. I told you I started off with five houses. I knew God was, I knew that that impression was 10, and I bailed out on my faith, and I said, I said, five and, uh, and then during, right after first service, I had somebody come up and gave me a check with tears in their eyes and said, I want to pay for five houses. Wow. So they gave us a check for $22,500 towards building houses. <laughs> well, I had to repent. I had to go into my office and say, God, I am so sorry. I did not trust you. I thought that 45000 was too much. And God said, you, it, it's not. Church, this is my point. We could take, we could in, in first service and second service, we could raise $45,000. And again, I'm just making a point. I'm not shaking you down here. We could raise $45,000 between all of us if we would do what God told us to do and do it in a sacrificial way. I am not saying that, you know what, if you do this and if you just give, then you know what, you're going to get a free car. Okay, I'm not. Listen, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get what would be a sacrificial gift that's gone. You're going to give in a sacrificial way, and you're probably going to feel the pain of that. Amen. I know that I will, and I'm going to, I'm going to do this. But I still believe this, that we could easily raise between all of us that $45,000, and it would not change any of our lives. Yeah. 
but it would dramatically change the lives of 10 families living in a home with a mud floor in a rainy nation with corn husk walls and a tarp for a roof with a stove that pours smoke right into the house. No bathroom. And for $45,000, if we could be so selfless, we could change the lives of 10 families. And they could have a home with a cement floor, metal walls, a roof that doesn't leak, bunk beds for their kids, a stove that vents to the outside. We can do that. You know that, I know that. You can, we can do that. The question is, will we do that? You see, I, when I talked to Caleb this week, you know, he, he was telling me about this, and, and he, so they have people that need this help. There's people that they have on a lot, there's people that they have vetted and know are in need, and they've got the people that will build the houses. And they have the material. The materials have gone up, almost doubled what it was, but they still can get the materials easily. But you know what they don't have? They don't have the funds to bring it all together. And we do. Let me tell you why I bring this up. Today is Palm Sunday, the day we, we... we praise God for the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday, but like Kaylee said, but Friday is coming. Friday is coming. Good Friday is the day that they killed Jesus. And, and basically, you know why they killed Jesus? They killed Jesus because of the indictment that he gave towards the religious leaders on Palm Sunday. They hated him because of what he said about them and what was in the temple. And so what did they do? And this is my my final point. What they did was they took 30 pieces of silver out of the temple treasury to pay Judas to betray Jesus and kill him. They took temple funds and used them to kill Jesus. Today, I want to challenge you to take temple funds and change somebody's life for Jesus. Somebody that Jesus died for. Somebody that Jesus sacrificed for. Somebody that Jesus gave life to. Somebody that we may never know until we step into heaven what kind of change or transformation it made in somebody's life. But God is challenging us in that. So on Good Friday, I'd like to, between now and and Good Friday, we're going to have the boxes in the back. And nobody's going to see, nobody's going to know. 
This is not for show. This is just something that, you know what, you're going you're gonna to go pray about this. And if God lays it on your heart and you're really serious about it, then you'll come back during the week and you'll come through the doors and you'll just drop your offering in there and say a prayer and leave. But by Good Friday, I think that would be something that the church is called to and should do. Amen? Amen? So again, I'm not twisting arms. I'm not making promises. I'm just laying a challenge on my heart in light of the message that God's laid on my heart, what he's called us to do. Things that are outside of what we might consider to be the the normal that he might challenge. So worship team, come on back up, would you please? So church, when Jesus comes to town, again, you never know where he's gonna go. You never know what he's gonna do. And, And he will challenge us in some of the areas that are the most dear to us because he wants to know, have we allowed those things that are most dear to us to become an idol that now has a place between us and him? And he's going to challenge those idols. He's going to bring them down because Jesus truly is. He is the king. He is the king of our lives. He is the king in whom we call out, Hosanna, Hosanna. No other king has the ability to save our soul but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Only in Jesus' name, only in Jesus' name is salvation found. There is in no other name salvation but the name of Jesus. He is our savior. There aren't multiple ways to heaven. There's one way, and his name is Jesus. He's the only gate, and he's called us into it. He is the king of kings, and we are called not to make him submit to us. We are called to submit to him. It's not my way or the highway, Jesus. Jesus is calling us to his highway, the higher way, to trust him. Look, Jesus is coming into, he's coming. He's coming. Just like the people of Israel, we're on this side of the fulfillment of that promise. And he's coming. And he's going to come and he is going to he is going to judge the unrighteous and the ungodly. But church, it just may not be the people we think. So what might Jesus cleanse in your temple let's pray Lord you are our all in all you are our everything you are the God that we trust and you are the God that we turn to and I pray today Lord that if there are any apart from you that today they would call upon your name that they would see Lord God that they need you in their heart that Lord we are deceitfully wicked that we are filled with sin and we have all fallen short but thank you Jesus that you are the glorious king who comes into the temple and cleanses us by your righteousness and by the power of your right hand you come Lord God to give us what we don't deserve but God have called us to allow you to bring transformation to a life that's been saved faith without deeds is dead boy but when we have faith in a God that's as big as what those scriptures uh, declare him to be he will bring transformation to our life for some of you today you need to call out and say Jesus come into my heart for others you need to repent repent simply tell God Lord I have sinned I have have built up idols in the temple and I, I lay those down I say Lord burn them 
Take them out. Let the fire of the Holy Spirit consume those idols in my life, Lord. And I want you first place in me, first place through me. That, Lord God, I don't want to hold on to religious practices, Lord. I want to hold on to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I want to be found in the train of your glory. I want to receive what I don't deserve, Lord God, because what I deserve is hell. But I thank you, God, that you have given me the opportunity to call out to you and receive from you that which you desire salvation eternal life forgiveness of sin the relief of condemnation and a hope that's found only in you and I pray that you speak to the hearts of those today that, are, that struggle with greed that struggle with those areas of, of holding on to what it is Lord that you have called to be used to pass through us Holy Spirit, I I pray that you would speak an indelible word, a sure word into the hearts and minds of each one, of each one, Lord, that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You are my all in all.
Come on, amen. Praise God. Listen, church, go be the church. Go out there and be the redeemed, be the blood-bought, be those that God has called into this community to be the light. Go be the church. God bless you all. And don't forget, pray. How can you be a part of building those houses? Amen. God bless you. Washed away, washed away.